Welcome to Open Banking Expo Unplugged, bringing you the brightest minds in open banking, open finance and beyond. Hello and welcome to another episode of Open Banking Expo Unplugged. I'm your host, as always, Ellie Duncan, Head of Editorial and Broadcast at Open Banking Expo. And today I'm joined by two guests, one of whom is Kieran James, who is the founder and CEO of Wonderful, um, whose mission is to achieve 100% fee-free donations for all UK registered charities. So the online platform um, has been doing this by implementing open banking-enabled account-to-account payments. We're going to be finding out, obviously, a lot more about that during this episode Also on the podcast is Sasha Deshmukh, who is the CEO of Amnesty International UK. Uh, They're a charitable organisation that does some really extremely important work on human rights. I'm sure they're a charity that you'll certainly have heard of. But we'll hear a bit more about Sasha uh, from Sasha about what that charity is up to at the moment and um, its interest in open banking, of course. So wonderful featured in a social media campaign that Open Banking Expo ran recently in conjunction with sort of Giving Tuesday to spread the news about how open banking has already been helping transform fundraising in the charitable and not-for-profit sector. So welcome to the podcast, uh, Kieran and Sasha. Hi. Hello. Kieran, let's start with you first. I know you founded Wonderful in 2016. So what exactly was the problem around charitable donations that you were trying to solve when you founded Wonderful? What we were seeing, I think, at the time um, is that there was a virtuous circle, that, as we like to describe it, of of donors, fundraisers and charities. So all of those people and organisations are getting up every day and doing amazing things. Um, and we wanted to try and bring a fundraising platform into that virtuous circle that was that was wonderful, essentially, one that had no fees associated with the money moving from a donor's account to the charity's account. Um, so that was our mission. We, we, we kicked off with a proof of concept, um, the idea being we set three milestones to see if we could achieve those. And at that point, we'd move the proof of concept out of proof of concept and into a fully fledged platform. So our model was was exactly that. Every penny from a donor reaches the charity. Uh, and obviously, we had to find a way of covering the fees um, from various places, whether it's hosting or, or payment processing or, or anything else, really just operating costs to ensure that that happened. Um, so that, that's how we got started in 2016. And that's essentially the problem that we wanted to solve. I think our view at the time was that a lot of people that were out there raising money by running marathons or having the head shaved or whatever it might be, uh, were doing so on the understanding that every penny that was raised through the platform they were using was actually reaching the charity. Um, so when you know it, it's discovered that isn't always the case, um, we, we wanted to try and fix that. Yeah, I was going to say it might come as a surprise to some people just hearing this podcast to, to learn that that is in fact the case. So were you yourself someone who um, was was involved in in kind of charitable fundraising? And is that how you kind of came about the idea, Kieran? Yeah, exactly. I'll give, give a bit of personal context. So 2016 was uh, was one of those years in the family when lots of things seemed to be happening. So it was my 50th. It was our 25th wedding anniversary. I think a couple of kids had uh, significant birthdays that year. And we thought, what can we do this year to mark the mark that year? Um, and one of the things I was doing was uh, was running a marathon over in New York for a charity. And I think just a little frustrated. It was the second time I'd, I'd done a marathon and, and, and seen money effectively leak out of that system into various different places. 
um, and just thought that there's got to be a different model. So we looked, we looked around, we felt corporate sponsorship was not without precedent in many areas, whether it's art, sports, culture, um, and that felt like a really good route to fund this movement of funds. Um, and that's basically how we embarked. So we approached uh, a number of potential corporate sponsors and said, Look, this is what we're trying to achieve. Clearly, it's a, a super positive message for you to be involved helping us out. Um, and, it, and it took a little while, A, to get the charities beyond that initial um, scepticism, I guess, that there was no ulterior motivation in what we were doing. And then also to convince the corporate sponsors um, to get behind the model as well. So it wasn't it wasn't an instant success I think that surprised us a little bit. We understood that it was a healthy kind of scepticism or cynicism from the charities, um, but but that was a, a tricky one to get over in the first instance. So then let, let's talk about exactly how you use open banking enabled payments to kind of bypass this issue of, of incurring card processing and other administrative costs then. Okay, so so that came a little later. And, and what basically happened, I've talked briefly about this, this issue of getting the buy-in from charities and everyone else. What happened was the money-saving expert came along and endorsed the platform. And, and basically, I'm sure your listeners will be very aware, the money-saving expert, a very, very well-trafficked website. Um, we suddenly were very confused as to why all these charities were registering in big numbers. And then one of us told us on, I think, day three, have you not seen the piece? And we went, okay. Um, and we literally went from, you know, doing half a dozen a month or maybe slightly more into doing 100 registrations in one day after that hand. So the floodgates opening for us started to create what we describe as a success paradox. Um, essentially, the more we grew, the more donations that went through the platform, the more popular it got, the more we were going back to our corporate sponsors and saying, can we have a little bit more money? And in fact, in 2019, um, 2018, 2019, we we were in a position where every single penny of the of the corporate sponsor's budget that we received, the, the corporate sponsor at that time in the cooperative bank, literally went to pay Stripe. Um, and, and no criticism of uh, of Stripe at all. It's just that was the way it was. We were we were just handing over all of that budget on card processing. So we recognised at that point this was a, a genuine and, and quite low ceiling on our impact and reach. We wanted to do something about that, and we started looking around in earnest for, for an alternative solution, a cheaper solution that would get that money from donor to charity. Um, there was a, a brief pause caused by COVID, <laughs> which meant everything went on hold for a while because basically we were still running this and still do as, a, as an entirely philanthropic operation. That's wonderful.org. Um, so we had to kind of have to make this decision about whether we moved all of the staff who were working also on a free telephone conferencing service, very important during the early days of lockdown, out of uh, out of wonderful.org and back into that into that service. So we had to pause briefly. That gave us time to take stock. Uh, and having done a couple of donations online um, via colleagues doing, I think it was a lockdown locks off challenge that someone was doing on, on LinkedIn. And I made a donation to that challenge couldn't believe how slick, how simple and straightforward that open banking donation was and thought this is absolutely the route forward for us. When we reopen, we're going to do this exclusively using open banking gateway payments and essentially, you know, remove all other forms of payment because that removes that ceiling on our impact and reach and we can just grow exponentially. Kieran, thanks for, for explaining all of that. And Sasha, let's bring you in at this point. Um, as I said earlier, I'm sure many of our listeners will have heard of, of Amnesty International, but can you tell us a bit more about the work that the organisation does, please? Thanks, of course, and thanks for having me to, to talk here today. So um, 
a lot of your listeners, I'm sure, will have heard of Amnesty International because you know, it's now over 70 years that Amnesty International has existed uh, working on human rights issues all around the world. Um, and we are one of the uh, larger organizations that are that are doing that. Sadly, at the moment, there are more um, pressures on human rights, more violations of different types happening in more places in the world than ever before. So our work ranges from the kind of campaigning and working to support and try and free prisoners of conscience that perhaps some of your listeners will know us best for, which was actually our origins. But that's only really a small part of our work now. Uh, we have a part of our work called the Amnesty Evidence Lab that's one of the um, most sophisticated uh, area, uh, sophisticated organizations analyzing evidence of human rights violations. That sort of thing is used in prosecutions, uh, sometimes prosecutions of war crimes or the evidence that's used in that, that kind of violation. And we're campaigning and working in countries all around the world for the enforcement of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights and against those violations of human rights, whether those are affecting communities or, as I say, sometimes on behalf of individuals who are human rights defenders themselves, but being very much targeted and, and persecuted. I mean, it's incredible work that you do. And, and I'm sure, you know, you have so so many people who, who fundraise on, on your behalf and, and donate to the charity. So uh, it'll be interesting to hear what you think about, obviously, what, what Kieran said there about Wonderful and, and what they're doing. I want to understand, I, I know, um, Sasha, that you've previously been chair of the board of War Child UK, and you're also a non-executive director of the fundraising regulator. So first of all, how acute is the issue that Kieran describes about donations sort of actually making their way in their entirety to the charity that they're intended for? Well, I think the first thing to recognise is that charities are um, very grateful, but also very dependent on the very generous support of of just those kind of donors that you've been talking about. And actually in the case of something like Amnesty International, um, where because of the nature of our work, um, we do not accept any government funding for our human rights campaigning. And we are, I have to say, actually very discerning about the uh, human rights standards that any corporate who might choose to support us um, has. We are perhaps even more dependent than some of the other charities I've, I've worked for in my past on the generous support of individuals um, who you know, give out of whatever income they can. Um, and a little bit as Kieran described in his marathon experience, you know, sometimes do some amazing activities uh, to raise more money for charities like, uh, like ourselves. So I think that um, all of those supporters are doing that with the motivation that the monies that they raise will have the maximum impact. So I think that anything that might mean some of those monies aren't having that impact and might be going uh, in a transaction cost caused by a friction between them as a supporter and the charity and the cause that they care about would be something that I think any supporter would be saying to all of us, you know, how can we move on from this? How can we make it better? How, how, how can they ensure that it's all of their effort that's going to the organisation, whichever one it is, whether it's Amnesty or another amazing cause that other people might might support, whichever one it is, I'm sure the motivation of charity supporters is very similar. I'm making all of this effort. I'm doing it because I care. Um, I want it to reach the cause. And if there if there reasons of friction between me and the money getting there that's to do with systems, 
well, I don't think anyone would, would, would want to see that happen. I think they'd want us all to be saying, how can we eliminate them? That obviously kind of leads me on to find out a bit more about, obviously, your, your interest or Amnesty International UK's interest in in what Wonderful is doing. I mean, you know, what, what Kieran was talking about earlier must have been music to your ears in many senses, right, Sasha? Absolutely. And actually, one of the interesting things about Amnesty is if you support us um, wherever you happen to be here in the UK, uh, you're, you're not only able to support us um, with your generous money, although that, and I have to say we do very much need that for the human rights work that we're delivering, but you're also able to be part of one of our, our local groups. So you can participate in local activism in your in your local area, but also with like-minded people, perhaps be involved in, in fundraising activities in your local area as well. And so we've got some incredibly generous, incredibly motivated people in our local groups around the country. And actually, one of, one of those, I think, in, our, in a group in Cardiff was a little bit of a pioneer, I think, about thinking about some of the innovation and, and some of the challenges and how they could be overcome of just that kind of friction that could, that could lead to um, uh, the loss of the support, you know, some, some of the support going to the charity. So they've been a bit of a, a, a pioneer in thinking about this. As an organization as a whole, as I say, we are you know, very, very much dependent on the generous support of, of, of our supporters. And so I think that I'd be the first to say that the charity sector as a whole sometimes I think is fantastic at thinking about innovation in the creative sense, perhaps in the new product sense, and perhaps sometimes a little bit more, uh, if not conservative, then just perhaps out of sight, out of mind of some of the things that perhaps stand behind the product, stand behind the service, stand behind the customer journey that we offer. But one of the reasons why I think, you know, we in Amnesty are now um, increasingly interested in, in, in open banking as a major area of innovation for us is that it's actually that kind of innovation that can achieve two things. Of course, it can in increase the amount of money that we have and that Sadly, there's more human rights work that we need to do around the world than ever before. So, of course, that's a motivation. But there's a second one as well. You know, I feel a very strong duty to our supporters that we should be offering the way in which their support can come to us that minimizes friction, that maximizes ease, that minimizes the steps in the customer journey. Uh, and obviously, that any innovation or change we make should absolutely be keeping security at the heart and indeed enhancing security really in, in, in an increasingly challenging world for consumers in terms of security. So I feel that duty strongly in a kind of customer service sense to my customers who are the generous people supporting us. Obviously then in, a, in the sense of being the chief executive overseeing the Amnesty International organization here in the UK, I look at this and think what could we be doing so much better with those lost, you know, thousands, arguably many thousands of pounds that might not make their way from supporters to an organisation like ours because of some of the traditional transaction costs involved in some of the more traditional, well-established methods of payment. Yeah, I mean, Kieran, I know that you were kind of nodding along there. So certainly there were some really interesting points there that, that Sasha made around you know, the security, right, of, of donations being one of them, but also just, you know, Sasha's reasoning for um, for wanting uh, to, to go down this this route of open banking enabled payments must be something you hear from, from a number of charities, right? 
No, absolutely. I think I think this is this is completely right. I think also the, um, the there are changes in the way that we're interacting with organisations that you know we're, we're much more aware of of their performance in so many different areas. So I think keeping on top of that and keeping those donations in a way that that feels like there's proper buy-in from both parties, the recipient of the funds and the person making the donation is is really critical too. So I think open banking offers tremendous scope in those areas where we can start to do some really interesting things that's just beyond payments and into much more exciting areas as well. But I think that the key things, the key reasons that, that, that Sasha's hit upon for us in terms of um, in terms of the experience for the donor are, are all around those those key areas of increased security, uh, removing friction, making that whole process very, very straightforward and easy, um, and obviously reducing the cost for everybody involved. Yeah, of course. And Sasha, if you, you know, if you were to implement uh, Wonderful and, and um, use that kind of giving platform, would you be able to give us an idea of how much money you'd be looking to kind of save on card processing fees and admin costs? Well, I mean, I think in a way, clearly, my motivation would be to maximise the amount of money that we can save on card processing fees and, and, and other forms of transaction costs uh, in order to deliver more for human rights. I mean, I suppose, put in a, a kind of more tangible sense, um, Amnesty International UK is uh, is not the largest uh, charity in the UK by, by any means, but we have very generous supporters. And every year we have around £30 million pounds or so of income in the UK, um, which obviously then is spent primarily in Amnesty International's work all around the world uh, uh, around human rights. So hearing that headline number, your listeners um, and yourself who are very familiar um, with this territory would be very quickly able to do some, some basic maths to say, well, actually the difference in being able to eliminate friction uh, alone, let alone actually with a greater flexibility perhaps offers an easier journey or newer motivations for support to, to people who perhaps might not be supporting us out. But even in terms of the elimination of friction, um, you can start to see the significance of it. Now, of course, you know, my other prime motivation would always be that we want our supporters to be able to support us in the ways that they would they would want to. So that does mean, you know, we, again, are very fortunate over uh, over many years to have built up around 200,000 or so people who are the people in the UK who give us that support that I've that I've spoken about. So would all of those people today want to use open banking? Well, of course not, because we're talking about something that's that's still a market innovation. Um, might there be some people today who aren't supporting Amnesty International who perhaps actually are more ready and in fact, you know, already very much have an appetite to, to use this kind of platform? Absolutely. And I think the question for us, and I suppose it's a question, although I'd say it's one where I've got a sense of excitement around the question is, um, is this is this one of those moments which, if you imagine back to being a retailer 10 years ago, who said, I don't think I'll ever need to worry about contactless, you know, wh whoever feels a hassle of coming in, putting a card in and pressing their pin, I'm sure people would still want to do that every morning when they buy their coffee on the, on, on the fly. And perhaps someone else who said, no, 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 I think the customer journey of the future is going to be much more like, you know, the person's barely stopping. In fact, they might have they might have 
uh, provided their order on their app before they've even arrived in the facility, even for a coffee, you know, physical thing, and and sort of move past, barely stopping as they grab it. And if if we're not the ones who can offer them the way to pay to do that, they'll go somewhere else. You know, the question for me is, this is obviously clearly a different transaction to buying a coffee, but I think the kind of overall question is a very similar one, which is, as I say, that reduction of friction, that recognition that our generous supporters, you know, we should be offering them ways to support us in the most flexible way that we can because it's their generosity that they're trying to give to us. And obviously, everyone having the shared motivation that whatever effort they're able to make, whether it's, you know, literally as a, as a share of their own hard-earned money or that they do some amazing activity, which means that people pull their way in to support them in the marathon or you know any other kind of exciting thing that they're doing for, for amnesty a book sale or an event locally there's so many things we all have a shared motivation that all of that support can make its way through to through to the cause so the exact percentage i think in a way if you take that 30 million and think about the typical transaction costs that might be involved in different elements of that it gives you a sense of what what alone with the existing support could be different in a different world. The question of actually how many people in a future world might only want to support with this kind of platform approach rather than um, uh, rather than the traditional methods. Truthfully, I don't know, but I think the question is like, you know, is this like my analogy of someone who said contactless isn't going to matter because you know none of my customers would ever mind spending forty five seconds to complete a transaction with me rather than be able to do it virtually you know not not stopping and and if so anyone who doesn't uh adopt uh, well, at least be considering this and then starting to adopt this with some bigger might find that they, they they're actually losing the ability for people to give them the support that they'd otherwise like to yeah i think that's an important point and, and a really relevant comparison with you know the introduction of, of contactless um and before that you know chip and pin Kieran, are you seeing growing interest from from charities um, in this new payment method and, and in open banking? It's re- it's very interesting and, it, and it's a really good question. And the answer is absolutely yes. Um, but almost prior to that, we, we we kind of were forced down the route of adoption of this because we just couldn't sustain the cost of card processing. So it was it was forced upon us, albeit we took the decision. It was still something forced upon us if we wanted to grow. And we were clearly quite nervous about making all of the charities who were currently using the platform move from accepting donations via card to, to strictly being open banking only. So, of course, what we did was have the customer service team report on a daily basis, actually in the first instance, probably on an hourly basis on a number of issues of people that were having problems making a payment and so on. The report back for you from that is virtually none. I mean, there were some banks that aren't supported, but in terms of the process, and ironically, I think everyone would probably share this, you know, the one possibly one good thing to come out of COVID is the familiarity with QR code. So just that, the fact you're going to open a menu in a restaurant using a QR code got people over that hurdle if they were starting this process on a, on a, web, on a web browser on a desktop. Um, if you're starting and finishing the, the journey of a payment on your mobile device, it's literally from checkout, um, tap to a select your bank, and then once you've selected your bank, authorise the payment in your bank. It couldn't be simpler. So the adoption has been really great. We've been very, very pleased that the charities that were already on board were were not unduly concerned at all about this. Um, and secondly, we continue to, to register new ones all of the time. So it's it's been very well received. 
I think more importantly now, when we're looking at some of the AIS scope that we we have as a as an authorized payment provider, I'll come on to that shortly. I think some of the things that we can start to to do now for charities in terms of really powering that dialogue between supporter and charity is incredibly interesting. And I think a lot of the charities are, are, are waking up to that too. Yeah, you mentioned it there. I mean, you recently became um, authorised by the Financial Conduct Authority, so the FCA in the UK. What does that actually mean for for Wonderful and, and how you can kind of continue to operate? Well, this is a really important part in our development and uh, and, and clearly quite a, a significant one in terms of work involved and commitment of the team. So Wonderful.org mentioned has always been free, always will be free for charities. Um, what we what we did initially with open banking was introduce a third party provider that slashed the cost and we're eternally grateful for for, for their re- their involvement in the and the relationship they formed with us. Um, but we always had this long term view of can we not do this ourselves because the reason for doing it ourselves is that we can continue to reduce those costs down to zero in terms of the direct cost of moving money from an account to a to from one account to another. So that's really significant that that ceiling has now been removed. We can grow exponentially. But what's also super important now is that we can roll out commercial services too. So wonderful organisation sits on one side as it always has done a non profit. Um, and completely free for charities. Wonderful Payments is now incorporated to start introducing commercial services. Um, And the beauty of that is that our reliance on corporate sponsorship as we move forward just diminishes. Um, So we don't need the corporate sponsor to foot the bill because actually the bill doesn't really exist. So I think it becomes a super symbiotic, uh, really strong relationship between the charities and the commercial um, clients that we have as well. So what, if I if I just loop back to the beginning when I was talking about that virtuous circle of charities, donors, and uh, and um, and fundraisers, and saying that we were really keen that the platform joined that virtuous circle, what we're now really seeing with the uh, the introduction of the commercial services, the virtual circle extends to buyers and sellers too. So. We have a, a nice little statement that we use in some of our marketing blurb here. You don't need to run the marathon anymore. You can just buy the trainers or sell them. So by simply making a purchase, a commercial purchase at checkout, you'll be supporting all of this amazing work that's, that, that, that's happening every day with our with our charity sector. Well, that's great to hear. And and look, seeing as we're recording this very near the end of 2022, what's in store for Wonderful as we move into 2023? I think we're going to be, I've talked a little bit about the the AIS stuff, Um, that's account information services for those unfamiliar. I'm sure most of the people listening to your podcast will be very familiar. But I think there are things here which are exploring that are very interesting around the the how, what and when donors give to charities, those three questions. And I think it's giving control back to those donors through account information service scopes that we can start to explore. Here's a, a quick example of how that might look. If you visit a charity website now, you'll very often be faced if you're making a regular donation or even sometimes with a one-off donation with some suggested amounts from the charity. Would you like to give £5, £15, £25? Now, they vary. We've done a lot of research on this. They vary considerably from charity to charity and the sector they're operating. And all sorts of reasons will dictate what those amounts are that the charities present. But it's still very much almost a monologue. It's this is what we think you should give us. And what we're really quite excited about is using account information services to actually say, what can I afford as a donor donor, to, to have those numbers presented in a dynamic way to me that reflects 
changes in my income, changes in my disposable income, changes in the, the cost of living, all sorts of things so that it becomes much more of a personalized um, and strong relationship between the charity. And another point that I think is quite, quite important to stress here is I think a lot of charity income is based on those recurring donations that come through, whether it's direct debit or whatever else. And I think it's really important that charities don't get associated with the almost the gym subscription model of that, that money's coming through and let's not wake up the people that are donating. For me, I think moving forward, that, that dialogue becomes a really important touch point for charities to go back and say, you know, this amount's changed this month. Do you want to give us a little less? Do you actually want to snooze this for a month because things are looking difficult? Um, and and then we'll be back in touch when when things change. So some really important developments, clearly pretty embryonic, but I think interesting areas to, to explore. Yeah, and a really good point there about the fact that obviously we are um, living through this, this cost of living crisis. I mean, Sasha, for you, obviously, you know, you, you must be aware that, you know, when we're going through kind of tougher economic times, obviously, one thing that, that you know, people might do is is stop or reduce the amount that they're giving to charities. So what what would you say to that? And, and, and also, you know, do you think that using open banking enabled payments is, is, is going to help there, you know, given what Kieran's just said? So I think charities, uh, Amnesty International and others should always have at the front of their mind that any support, whether it's in economic good times or hard times, any support that any of our supporters are giving is incredibly generous. You know, even in economically good times, um, people are making a choice to to give this support. And they get great value out of it themselves. But, you know, it is generous. Um, and actually, I should say that historically, over many, many, many decades, you know, sadly, many different recessions and economic pressures that we've had in the UK, We've seen that charity donation is one of the last things that people cut. Um, having said that, of course, we are, we, you know, we really look like we're looking at some very, very tough economic times. And I'm sure, I, again, I'm sure all my peers in the charity sector would be saying that if anyone were to be facing a personal dilemma of heat, eat or donate, the answer is heat, eat and indeed heat, eat and seek help in particular from some charities who can support you there you know we we would all be the first to say that as indeed would the with the with the fundraising regulator and the charity commission commission themselves what i would say just picking up what kieran said is that i think that anything that adds to the sense of real dialogue between a charity and the supporters is fantastic amnesty actually has always been a charity that in addition to saying we do need financial support, and we really do, you know, it is not cheap to be able to campaign and work and research and gather evidence, fight, you know, and support legal cases um, and all of the security issues to do with the kind of work that we do. Sadly, we need the money absolutely to do our work on human rights. But we actually also need those many thousands of supporters to be activists themselves, you know, to take action, to say that this matters to them. So perhaps we've always been slightly more at the end of charities who want our supporters to be active. Um, but I think anything that supports that philosophy um, and brings that philosophy increasingly more into the financial transaction element of the relationship, rather than something you have to build around a very passive financial transaction relationship, can only be a good thing for the charity sector. 
Well, Kieran and Sasha, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. It's been absolutely fascinating to hear uh, about what Wonderful is doing and how you're using open banking payments. It's a, it's a great use case for the industry to to really um, to really kind of utilise, I think. And um, Sasha, best of luck, of of course, with your charitable work at Amnesty International and all your your work on human rights. Thank you so much, both of you. Thank you. Thank you. My thanks again there to Kieran from Wonderful and to Sasha from Amnesty International UK. Great example of an open banking use case. And if you'd like to listen back to other recent episodes of Open Banking Expo Unplugged, then you can visit the on-demand section of openbankingexpo.com. That's all for now. Goodbye from me.